Welcome to the CanoeRaceWorld.com podcast, your home for everything related to marathon canoe racing. Now, it's time to get your paddles wet with your hosts, Kevin Olson and Bill Mahaffey. Take it away, boys. The Canoe Race World podcast. Hosting today is myself, Bill Mahaffey, and I'm joined by the wonderful, always lovely, Rebecca Barton-Davis. Rebecca, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. We're less than a month to the Asable River Canoe Marathon, so training is really going strong and, and starting, I guess, to wind down a little bit. We've got through the last weekend of most people's long runs running into into that. So how are you feeling after a weekend of long training, Bill? It was a uh, 10-hour total weekend of training for me. I'm feeling really good. Saturday was a little rough. Post First post paddle from Cabo, I'm going to be completely honest, I sweat out a lot of tequila on Saturday. So, yeah, but no, by Sunday afternoon, I was feeling pretty good after uh, hour 10 wrapped up. Now, today is a Wednesday. We're recording on a Wednesday, and Barton Farms on a Wednesday does intervals, right? Yeah, so we did intervals tonight. Now we're doing more like pure speed stuff than we were earlier in the season. Not so much because you need it for the marathon specifically, but we're just trying to kind of sharpen up the last bit of speed going into doing the sprints for position and things like that. So maybe it won't help us so much in the night, but it will get us in a good starting position. And I think we have the good, nice long base going into, into the rest of the races this year. But I have a former Hogwild Racing teammate on with us tonight, and that's Weston Willoughby. How are you tonight, Weston? Good. Thanks for having me on. I think you were doing some intervals tonight, too, right? We sure did. That's great. It's uh, It seems like pretty much everyone on in Michigan is on a Wednesday night interval program, and uh, it seems like in Quebec... Uh, they have their Wednesday night race series, and that's been uh, going strong all through June, and I think it's carrying steam through July and well into August before Classique. Yeah, a- pro- absolutely. They do some really interesting stuff with their... Let's jump in and do a little... Let's audible to some Quebec recap. They do some yeah. interesting stuff with their Wednesday night races, right? Yeah, so the Wednesday night race series moves around from a few different locations. Some of them are um, further upstream on the St. Maurice, uh, quite a few of them. I'd say the bulk of them take place in Schwinnigan proper. And they do some different courses on the river there. And then they also have a couple down in Tra uh, Riviere. So they kind of hit a lot of different people. So they're not all having to travel a couple hours to get to the races. One that I want to mention in particular is the one that happened in the middle of June. They had an all- a mixed race so everyone had to race mixed and it actually had I think one of the better turnouts for the season with 18 teams so that's awesome to see as a woman paddler I remember going up to my first classic and there were two mixed teams and to see 18 mixed teams on a small Wednesday night race with you know a lot of the local top guys racing women's it's uh, super cool and encouraging and I think I think we're seeing that turn into a really good female paddler development. So keep it up, ACCQ. You're doing a good job. Absolutely. And if I remember right, you talk about the, the top people, you know, doing that. Guillaume and, and Av won that, if I remember correct. 
Yeah, yep, they were the top team, followed by Luke Mercier and Charlotte Prue. And uh, third place was Maggie Lambert and Serge Paget. So lots of top names, top 10 paddlers in there with um, some very strong women. Looks like the field was pretty tight and, you know, lots of teams racing against each other, which is what you really want to see. So there are even some kind of Quebec legends out there, which is probably a little more unusual. Mario Blackburn raced with Caroline Gallipo. And, you know, he's he's one of the legends of the sport uh, up in Quebec. So that's, a, again, a really cool thing to see them promoting the women paddlers and uh, and making that effort. I Absolutely. guess we can uh, transition to the most recent race. They've had, they've had a lot of races up there. So if you want to check, check out the results make sure to see the ACCQ Facebook page. It's incredibly active and really up to date that they recently had the circuit, the provincial circuit had a race in Latouk sponsored by St. George's Nissan. And that looks like you've got some pairings of people that aren't racing together, but the guys that are coming to the marathon are, are getting out and racing those circuit races. You want to tell us how the the top teams finished, Bill? A- absolutely. On top of the uh, the results is uh, Guillaume and Christian Charette. I am awful with names. So Louis Simone Pruneau and Serge Page were second, and Sebastian Garnier with, uh, you're going to have to help me here. Emile, Emile yeah, one of these days, I'm going to learn French, right? I promise it will happen. Maybe one of them from uh, somebody from Quebec can uh, be a special correspondent for the show here. If you're out there listening, we could use a Quebec correspondent. Yeah, it's first, uh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, no. Yep. Oh, uh, first mixed team was Louis Lefebvre and Shirley Trudel, and they are, I know, signed up for the Asable, so leading in strong to that. And then the first women's team was Sarah Lassard and Ev Chamberlain. Sarah's been getting those bow hours to race um, with Edith McCaddy coming up here in the Asable. And Ev is teamed up with Mike Schlimmer. So he's racing the Yukon 1000 right now with Ben Schlimmer. And you do have to take rest in that. So I believe it's six hours out of every 24. Your your tracker has to be stopped, you know, stationary in place. But uh, that's I think it takes close to a week and I'm <laughs> we'll see how he's feeling after that have <laughs> good long training I guess <laughs> yeah a- absolutely that's what you call a long run so it is yeah and you would have to think that Sarah and Edith have to you know we'll we'll get into an ensemble show uh down the road a little bit but Sarah and Edith have to be the number one pick for the the women's spot and Mike and Ev could challenge and compete for the mixed crown so that's a couple of very strong female paddlers from Quebec yeah, and uh, one other team I guess I'll mention out of uh, the race up there is Dave and Renal Flajul, a father-son team that are coming to the marathon as rookies this year. Another 15-year-old as uh, Weston is racing with his nephew, Dane, who's also 15. So I think I think we have two or three of those this year in the Asable, which is the youngest you can do the race. So it'll be pretty exciting to see how they all hang in there, and hopefully they all have really good first experiences and are excited to come back absolutely absolutely well if you want more information on the accq i highly strongly suggest you check out their facebook page here Ayute does a phenomenal job with media coverage for them up there give it a check out it's well worth checking out 
Yeah, and I guess without further ado, let's transition over to our guest, Weston, and uh, get some intel on uh, the 2022 Texas Water Safari. Absolutely. Weston, you got to give us the, give us the backstory and your race recap, man. Congratulations on your win. One of six members of team. You were black flag, if I remember correct. How, how'd this all happen? And walk us through the race. So these guys uh, reached out kind of late winter, early spring to see if I wanted to race with them. And it's kind of a race I've been wanting to do for a while, but it's been hard to do want to do it and try to be competitive for the marathon in my opinion and uh this year was a good year for me like you said mentioned earlier i'm uh, racing with my 15 year old nephew so i figured i might not have to be quite as sharp for the marathon so i said yeah i'll be on your team and uh i was able to get down with them guys a couple of times do a couple of the texas races i think we did mac race number four and we also did the water safari prelim and we got uh, some quality training in. Yeah, who all was on your team? So I had Logan Minor, Ian Rolls, Andrew Condy, Clay Wyatt, and Gaston Jones on the team. We were part of the Black Flag team, like Bill said, and a six-man boat. I know some of the races we did down there, they're a pretty tight course, and those six-man boats are like 40 feet long. They're gigantic. And I kept on telling those guys, like, if you would have shown me the boat that we were in and showed me the river that we were going down, I'd have told you there's no way it's getting down there. But those guys know what they're doing, and they steer you right around to all that tight stuff, and you make it through. Right, right on. Walk me through the race. How did the race go for you? So, yeah, we started, we were second place after the prelim. The other six-man team that we were competing with ended up beating us by about 30 seconds in the prelim. So it's kind of like a marathon start line, but you're in the water. And we started on the front row. And once the, we started on Spring Lake, which is a reserve area, you're not even allowed to swim in it or kayak on it any time of the year besides uh, the water safari. They give a special privilege to get on Spring Lake. We lined up and the gum went off and it's probably about three minutes before we hit a portage. And we're able to edge the other team out to the portage but we were rubbing elbows with them going down the run there and uh we ended up getting the lead early in the race we ended up switching to single single blade paddles after the start for a little bit and uh the other team stayed on their doubles and they went by us and i think the best thing we did the whole race was uh after they passed us even when we did switch back to doubles we never tried to catch them we just uh Tried to keep the boat going good and never tried to work too hard. So we kept okay. it moving good and tried to be as efficient as possible, which was pretty important, not only because it's a long race, but because of the conditions that we had during the year this year. The water safari was not quite the hottest it's ever been and not quite the lowest water it's ever been, but it was close to both of those. So it made for uh, some pretty tough conditions. So I think it was really important that we uh, kept within our limits and didn't work too hard early on. And that was something we kind of stuck to the whole first day. We never wanted to work too hard. So we just let that other team go. They ended up getting a few minutes ahead, probably at their furthest. We just kept it going nice. And I think after a few hours, we ended up catching them. 
I don't know if it was just because they went to single blades more and we were on doubles and you go a little faster on the doubles. But we ended up catching up to them. Right after we caught them, we both switched to single blades and we were riding for a few minutes and the other team decided that we needed to pull. So they told us to get up front and pull. This was my first um, turn in the bow. So during the race, we switch who who's in the front of the boat probably every hour and a half okay. at the very most is how long you go up in the bow. And I had just jumped up and we caught the other team and they told us to go up front. Our boat was significantly faster when we were both on single blades. And we ended up probably getting about a two minute lead in about an hour when I was in the front. We ended up going for a little while and we switched to doubles and it was coming up to my turn to get out of the bow. But when we got to the spot, it didn't seem like a good spot to switch. So I ended up pulling a double shift. I stayed up in the front of the boat and then, uh, the other team ended up catching back up to us on the doubles. And this is probably about eight hours into the race. We were on uh, Gonzalez Pond coming into the dam. So it was kind of backwaters. And they caught us and went to take the lead. And we ended up just riding them into the dam. And once we got to the dam, it's uh, okay. everybody kind of sets the boat down and we prep it for the night because it's just starting to get dark out. So we pull the lights out, throw those on, and everybody's like, taking care of themselves, figuring out what all you need to do. And we ended up taking off and the other team just wasn't ready to go yet. So we ended up getting just about a minute and a half just because we were quicker on the porters than they were. We were going down the river and I don't think they ever really gained on us. We, We held kind of steady for a little while overnight. The nighttime was kind of tough because it's really shallow below the dam. Both teams had a GPS track, I think, and uh, we we had ours on, and I think the first time we came to a shallow spot that, like, our GPS said, go left. We had a couple guys in the boat that were looking at the river, and they said, oh, the right looks pretty good. Let's head over that way. We ended up going to the right and grounded out. We had to get out and run with the boat and uh, put it back in the river, and after that, we decided I think the GPS is probably pretty right. <laughs> probably better follow the uh, the GPS. Yeah, so we followed that the rest of the time, and it sounded like for whatever reason, the other team never turned theirs on or followed it, and um, from different accounts I've heard, they ground out anywhere from 10 to 15 times overnight, had to get out and run, and we were able to make it overnight without probably getting out maybe three times, so that saved us quite a bit of time overnight. Once we got to daytime, we... uh, it seemed like every time we came by a checkpoint, we were gaining like several minutes at a time. I think what for whatever reason, it just happened to be whenever we went hard, the other team was going hard. And whenever we decided to go easy, it just happened to be that the other team was going easy. So they never really gained back on us. But it was another situation where the water's low and the temperature's hot. So um, we knew when the daytime hit, it was going to be kind of hard to really push ourselves yeah. and we need to stay within it. our limits again. Yep. But a, a big part of the staying cool and stuff was every time we came to a pit, our uh, pit crew would have ice, like buckets full of ice and water and they'd um, do like ice bucket challenge to us and dump <laughs> water all over us and cool us down. And then uh, we had, now, did you do the, uh, did you do the ice socks? 
Were yes. those the thing? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So every pit we came to, they had, they call them ice socks, but they're towels that they kind of cut up and Velcro together, but they chuck ice in them and you hang them around your neck. And those things maybe only lasted like 20 minutes. It was hot enough just outside. And then your body heat was just melting the ice, like incredibly fast. Right on, right well, on. Do you, do think, you think the ice socks and stuff like that helped or was it? Oh, they helped big time because it never really seemed all that hot to me or any of the other guys in the race. But we were talking with the pit crew afterwards and they said it was miserable waiting for us to show up. So I think the ice helped out a ton. And then when you're doing double blades, there's water flying all over the place. So you're staying pretty wet too. Gotcha. So we were able to maintain like a pretty good temperature during the race and I think that was kind of one of the question marks on me going in there was, you know, you got this guy from up north. How's he going to handle the temperatures? And it, it seemed like we did all pretty good. Uh, it never really killed me too bad, but I think our pit crew did a good job keeping us cool. Um, so the rest of the day, you know, it's, it's the second day. You're not like really feeling too spunky, but we were able to keep it going pretty good and pop the boat in the shallows and you know you're only spending like on the second day an hour in the bow is a pretty long pull so we're we're switching almost every opportunity we can get get a fresh guy up there the bow position's probably the hardest position in the boat and it'll really tell you you're out but towards the end of the second day we came into the log jams and it's just kind okay. of a part of the river where you cut through and there's there's always like logs piled up in there and uh from everything i've heard they weren't as bad as they could be so i got away easy on that part i guess um but we had to get out of the boat a few times and it was kind of like going through a jungle so we got through the log jams and then uh i think it's about an hour to the saltwater barrier from there which is where it starts turning into seawater so it's like flat water there and we had gassing up front for that last pull and i think after going through the log jams we we're going kind of easy so everybody's feeling pretty good and we really hammered it to the, uh, the salt water barrier and uh after you pass through there you got about roughly an hour before you get out to the bay the last five miles of the race across the open water and uh we paddled up to the end of the river and then pulled the boat off to the side and put our spray skirt on and you have to wear life jackets. So we put those on everybody and we all got zipped up in the skirt and hopped back in the boat and took off. And uh, we were anticipating a rough bay because the wind was like 20 miles an hour about. And uh, we definitely got it. So we got into the bay with about an hour lead on the other team. And we got about halfway across and it was kind of hair raising just getting halfway across and that wasn't even the worst part so you get halfway across and you make it to the barge canal and once we started getting in there the waves really got big on us and uh i think i saw one wave go over logan's head he was in the bow at the time and i was in seat two but i'm pretty sure it went over logan's head and hit me in the chest and our boat ended up filling up and we sunk so we uh, pulled it back a little shallower. Um, one of the things that's great about the bay is I think about the deepest it gets is eight feet. And for the most part, it's like four feet deep. 
So when you do flip over, even in the open water, you can touch the bottom. Okay. So we were able to get the boat kind of shallow enough to dump it out. We all hopped back in, which was no easy task because of the waves. And uh, we got going again, and we we filled up with water and flipped again within probably two minutes. Wow. So we were kind of a little stressed at that point because, you know, we had an hour lead, but we're losing a lot of time at this point. It, it, so it evaporates quickly when you're, yeah, when you're tipping and swimming like that. Yeah. So I think the other team was, they were still holding on to hope that, you know, maybe these guys will be not doing too great in the bay and we still got a shot at catching them. And, you know, that's kind of what was happening. Well, but, and I, uh, I was watching on the tracker as this is happening. And I think you guys, like for a while, they were projected to finish ahead of you because you were swimming like so much. And I think that's one thing with these six mans, don't they take like it's quite a process to get them emptied out after after you swamp, right? Yeah, and it depends on what you do when you do swamp. So the first time we flipped over, we left the boat upside down. And then when we got shallow enough, we just picked it straight up and dumped it out. The second time we flipped over, we rolled it right side up. And it was like halfway out of the water at that point. And all the waves just filled it all the way up. And it's just a an extremely heavy boat at that point. So it, it's really complicated to drain it out. And we couldn't just lift it up and get the water out of there because it was so heavy. It's got to have at least a thousand pounds of water in it just because they're so big. But anyway, at this point, we decided that we needed to make a better plan for how we're going to attack the bay. Just because the waves were so big and the way we were going just wasn't getting it done. Um, but fortunately, we were like right at the end of the seawall for the barge canal. So we okay. kind of pulled it to the, there's like a little beach there. We pulled it up and, you know, the first thing we had to decide was how are we going to drain this boat out? It's like way too heavy for us to lift up. And... We ended up getting a pretty good plan going on and drained it out. And then we had to decide how are we going to go at this body of water that's been kicking our butts. So we ended up deciding that we were going to kind of cut straight across the barge canal. We were going kind of diagonally across it before. And I think the answer definitely was we needed to go sideways to the waves. And instead of the waves breaking over the boat, the boat would just kind of float up on top of them. And it definitely wasn't the most stable way to do it, but we weren't taking water on, which was what was uh, really, really swamping us. And uh, once we got past the worst of the ways, we cut up and went towards sea drift. And we were getting there, and uh, probably 10 minutes before we got to the end, we could see the flashing lights where, like, all the people were waiting. And... Uh, we saw some police lights go off, and we thought, oh, dang, the other team must have got ahead of us and finished. <laughs> they're, they're doing all these flashing lights, and you know what? We're still going to paddle hard because maybe that's just not what's going on. And we pulled in, and it, it had to be the most anticlimactic finish I've ever had to a race. We got into the end, and we were like, are we the first boat here? Did the other guys make it in? And the, there's probably a dozen people on the shore, and they said, no, you're the first ones here. And everybody on our team just kind of let out a collective sigh of relief. She's like, whew, <laughs> we made it. 
so we were kind of worried. We wasted probably an hour and a half in the bay. I think we were projected to finish around 39 and a half hours when we were getting into the bay, and we ended up finishing close to 41. So we wasted an hour and a half, and we only had an hour on them coming into the bay. So we thought they might have been able to get ahead of us, but I think they ended up having a little more trouble in the bay than we did because we ended up beating them by about an hour and a half. Yeah, that was one thing as you watched. Uh, I was tracking the race from start to finish uh, to, to the cutoff time. And it was in, really interesting to watch because the day conditions were changing so much over like basically the, I think it was like two to three days that people were finishing. And you'd have periods of time where like you guys it would take twice as long as you thought kind of to cross that last five miles, which is definitely bad, but you know, within a range. And then there were other times where I would see someone's tracker where they were moving like half a mile an hour for 10 hours. Um, and like some pretty good teams, like teams that were finishing, I think finished top 10 yeah, in so, the safari. So it was a uh, really harrowing. Yeah. And that's exactly what I told people. I think crossing that bay was one of the most harrowing experiences I've had in a canoe. It was pretty nerve-wracking. Even with a life jacket on, I think some of those waves would have been challenging to float in, you know. Um, but I think some of those teams that took, like, 10 hours to cross the bay, a lot of them were just getting swamped left and right, so they ended up walking. Like I said, the bay is four feet deep in a lot of spots, so I think they just got next to the shoreline and walked their boat up the shoreline instead of paddling it. And it's not the fastest way to make it, but you can make it. I did yeah, see some reports were, of some walking and some people dragging them, and yeah. Yep. And then there was a, also, it looked like at one point uh, on the, would have been the second night of finishes, um, so 24 hours after Weston finished, there was like a, it looks like almost 20 boats were camped out on that little like seawall thing between, um, the barge canal and, and the finish line. <laughs> and I think some of them were there kind of intentionally. We're going to stay here until things get better. And then other ones were trying to move on, but kept floating. So <laughs> they were kind of stranded out of necessity, but um, it was, it, it changed the results at the end of the race quite a bit. The further back in the field you got, depending on what kind of risks people were willing to take or, if they decided to wait it out and both strategies ended up working, um, depending on the team, you know, so if they knew that what their strengths were and hitting the bay at the right time, um, could, could mean that you were moving up quite a bit. And sometimes that meant waiting and sometimes that meant, uh, going, going in the night, um, regardless of the condition. And, and rolling them bones and just seeing how it shook out. Yeah. And absolutely. What was your, so, so this was your first water safari. Like what was your favorite part of the entire race? Like this was the moment where you're like, Oh man, this is so awesome. I don't know if I can tell you my favorite part of the, in particular of the race, but my favorite part of doing the race was the team that I had. Those guys were fantastic. They, they just had me show up and they had everything ready to go for me. I just had to show up and paddle for the most part. Um, and then when we were on the course, like everybody had a great attitude. Everybody was willing to take a dig when they needed to. And it was just all positive. And, uh, we just all had the same game plan where 
you know, we're going to be conservative as much as we can. And we're just going to try to hold on till, uh, till it's cooler out and paddle hard in the night. And hopefully that takes us where we need to go. And I just had a really positive experience with that team. Right on, right on. Uh, on the other side of the coin, was there anything where you were like, oh, this is just, this is, why did I sign up? This is awful. So I think probably my least favorite part about that race was um, like the injuries or whatever you want to call it. Um, like you do the Asabo Marathon or any other long race, you're going to end up with some blisters or some rashes and you do the water safari and it's like two and a half times the other longest races we do. And I ended up losing some fingernails from that race and you got some pretty good rashes by the time you get to the end. And uh, one of the things we did carry in the boat with us was some extra body glide or desitin. And you definitely reapplied that several times during the race just to try to get some some relief. Wow, man, that's insane. Fingernails like gone. Yeah, I'm uh, seven for ten right now. Seven for <laughs> ten. Holy crap. <laughs> that's nuts. How how are you feeling? We're now um, you know a few weeks post. Like, can can you feel it when you get in the boat? I know earlier we were talking. Today was intervals. Are you like, oh, that's the water safari still? I think for the most part, I'm I'm pretty close back to a hundred percent. I know the last couple races I did, it, I could definitely feel it. Um, actually, the first race I did one week after the water safari is Nick Walton. He's another safari competitor, so. We just went out and suffered together. We figured we wouldn't make anybody else suffer with somebody that just did the safari, so we'll just do it together. And that was pretty rough. <laughs> but right on. I've had a few weeks now, and I I think I'm pretty close back to 100%, which I didn't expect. I thought I'd be kind of dragging for quite a while, but I think one of the differences with the safari is it's a lot longer, but you're really conscious about the amount of effort and muscle you put into your paddling. So I think I've done marathons where I feel more beat up at the end, but definitely I am more tired than anything else I've ever done. I wonder if part of why the fatigue may not feel quite the same is you're switching between singles and doubles, I think pretty much throughout the entire race. And I know, like, if you do a running marathon, if you switch between running and walking, like, you feel a lot better because you're using um, slightly different muscles and, and positioning. So I I would imagine it works similarly with, you know, going from canoe to kayak. You know, you just you get that little break and kind of change things up. Yeah, so um, just speaking on that, during the first day and even part of the first night, I think we were trying to do, like, two-thirds of double blades and one-third of single blades just because you do get like an extra mile an hour when everybody's on double blades but by the time we got into the second day the double blades really do tire you out quite a bit more and we were actually going really good on single blades and by the time we got into the second day we were tired enough where we were almost going the same speed on singles and doubles so we would just do about an hour on each one and switch or depending on what everybody felt like, if you just wanted to stick with one or the other and you were in the bow is kind of like dealer's choice, but it definitely does use different muscle groups switching between those two. And 
um, you do have different postures. So it, it does give you a, quite a bit of relief when you switch between one or the other. Now, walk us through real quick. You hit on something that I learned when I was down there for the night race. I, I had never doubled before outside of a recreational kayak on, on a booze float. Uh, so I got a crash course in doubling before the night race, Mac race number four. Walk us through the difference in postures between the two styles. I'm no expert, but I feel like I'm fairly confident. Um, I would say with the kayaks, you're kind of sitting upright more. And it's more of a rotation. A lot of people with canoes, you kind of lean into the stroke. So I think when you're canoe stroking, you kind of have a little more strain on your low back. Whereas when you're um, double blading with the kayak paddle, you're sitting more upright and just kind of doing a rotation. So that takes a lot of strain off uh, your low back. At least that's what it did for me. Um, As far as everything else goes, like double blading is a lot harder on your shoulders and your arms are like above your heart all the time. So I think it's just pumping blood up to a higher place and it's, you're doing like twice the paddling because you have two blades. So it's definitely a lot more effort and you get more speed out of it. But over the course of a long race, it's definitely nice to be able to back down the effort with a single blade and take some of the uh, strain off your shoulders. And it's just kind of a nice break. Each one of them is a break for the other, really. So sure. what was Just, your... Uh, it's different, oh. yeah. Good. What was your feeding strategy for the safari? I mean, two days in the boat, I know for me personally, I don't think I could just eat, like, the same thing the entire time. Or did you kind of change it up more or anything work really well? So I think everybody in the boat was kind of on the same plan of... Everybody drank Tailwind for their drinker bottle, and they have plenty of calories in it. Um, and then everybody had Spiz in, like, a bike squeeze bottle. And we got those just about every pit stop, a, a Tailwind and a Spiz bottle. And we were really getting quite a few calories just out of those two things. And then they had me pack up a food bag, and we had four of those that the feeders gave us throughout the race. And... uh I just put a few different things that I thought sounded good in there. Um, I had some peanut butter and jelly sandwich, some bags of chips, and uh, some trail mix and stuff. And everybody kind of had a couple different things. And when they passed out the food bags, it was kind of like shuffle the deck and you see what you get. You're not always going to get your food bag. And I know I ate some stuff out of some of the other guys' food bag that was pretty good. Um, And then they... Uh, the pit captains just chuck surprise stuff in there every once in a while. And one of the favorite things I had in the race was uh, they took an avocado and chucked it in a plastic bag and smashed it up. And you're supposed to just bite the corner off of it and kind of eat it like a pudding, I guess. But it was kind of like guacamole in a bag. And that was my favorite thing I had in the whole race. Guac in a bag, man. That yeah, is it was uh... fantastic. Um, but I think for the most part, all of the guys on my team got by with just liquid nutrition, I guess. And I, it might've just been a little too hot to feel like wanting to eat stuff. Everybody kind of ate a little bit, but it wasn't as much as I would have expected. Okay. Right on, right on. It seems like you mentioned Tailwind and Spiz. 
Like those two names seem to be the product names that are hitting real hard. Like everybody's in a spiz right now. Spiz <laughs> is the stuff. Are, are you feeding with spiz in the ensemble or no? Uh, for the past couple of years, I had just been using Perpetuum. And I've looked at the labels on both of those, the nutrition labels, and they're really similar. Most of the reason I was using Perpetuum was just because it's easier to get. But we've got the dealer in Grayling now that's uh, carrying Spiz, and I think Spiz tastes better. So I'll probably start picking some of that up if it's going to be easily accessible. But for the most part, you're getting yeah, the same, out North and the same nutrition yep. out of them. Okay. Okay. What, what flavor did you like best out of the Spiz? Did you have a, a preferred flavor? My favorite flavor was uh, Gaston Special Mix. He had uh, chocolate Spiz, and he put some peanut butter powder in there with some sea salt in it, and it tasted like you were eating a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. Oh, brother, that sounds so, delicious. I'm drooling just thinking about it. That sounds good. I took Gaston stuff any chance I could get because he had the best food bag, too. <laughs> <laughs> Right on, right on. Uh, what, it, like, this thing's on my list, right? Uh, full confession, on my list, but it, it scares the bejesus out of me. Like, what advice would you give any first-timers that want to try the safari? I think you just got to go in there expecting it's going to take a long time. And, and uh, just kind of try to prepare for anything you're going to come across. Um, it's a little different setup than any of the races we have where – you're not allowed to get certain things from your pit crews, so you just have to pack it in the boat. Um, I don't think we're allowed to get any extra clothes handed off or any sunscreen. Um, there's a whole list on the uh, entry rules and registrations and stuff. And we ended up packing a ton of stuff in the boat, and those guys vacuum bag a lot of stuff and put it in there just so it takes up less room. But if you can go down there and race with somebody that knows what they're doing – that's probably going to help you out big time for your first time down there. I know I would have had a totally different experience if I wasn't on a team that didn't have a lot of guys that knew what they were doing. And even our pit captains were experienced veterans of the, the race. And uh, that uh, that's another one part that's really different from any races we have here is when you go into pits, you only have two pit captains that are allowed to be on your team. And they're the only ones on the shore that are allowed to hand anybody anything. So if we would have got, like, water dumped on us from somebody besides one of the pit captains, that could have been a penalty. But it's so they really... Lim they, they limit that to two, and that's it. Those are the only ones that can... Wow. Yeah, so they have some different rules, and you definitely want to read up on those. But as far as actually racing goes, like... You just need to be on top of being conservative with your efforts and uh, being on top of your nutrition because you go down in the marathon, like that's long enough, but it's going to be over in that day. If you go down in the safari, like you might have two days left to go. That doesn't bode well for a person like me that loves to show up until they blow up, which often happens early. So Yeah, you don't want to do that in the safari. Right on, right on. I don't think that's a good plan. <laughs> but like I said, that was kind of part of our game plan going in was just uh, mediate the effort and try to just make it go nice and easy for the first day. And then 
then once we got more into the second day and stuff, you could mirror out some efforts. Yeah. Now, you guys, uh, we, we talked a little bit about the boat that, that was in pursuit. That was a boat of uh, uh, another six-man boat. Um, Chris Isendorf, Kyle Isendorf, Nick Walton, um, William Russell, I think Yonley was on that. Who am I missing? Am I missing Tim Rask. One? Tim Rask, there we go. That was quite the He's boat, a, too. He was kind of out of the uh, marathon racing world for a while, but he's an excellent kayaker. So they have some guys on their team that are really good kayakers, Tommy and Tim in particular. And it, when we were both on doubles in deep water, those guys were definitely a little faster than us. But I think uh, this year definitely favored our team. We were a lighter team, and we were better on singles. And uh, the shallow water definitely went better for us. Played a, played a role, contributed? Yeah, a little bit, I would say. Right on. And then third place was a uh, a mixed team, right? And that was a four-person boat, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it was. So those four-person boats are definitely competitive, especially when it's a shallower year like it is it was this year. And uh, I think the biggest drawback from those four-person boats is when you do get in the straight, deep stretches, the horsepower just really is what you need. And the six-man boats can pack that in pretty good. And it's, it's two less motors on the boat. Yeah, it is. And actually, okay. um, some guys on my team were telling me about, I don't even remember how many years ago, maybe like 10 years ago, they didn't have the six-man limit on their teams, and they kind of had an arms race going on. And they got up to like nine-person pe- nine teams just because that extra horsepower was really what's winning the long race. But they, they ended up uh, making a rule and capping it at six. Wow, how would you, I can't even imagine having paddled down there for the night race, a nine-man, a boat long enough for nine people going down that river in some of those spots. And that's exactly what I was thinking. If you show me that boat in the river and I tell you, how'd you make it down there? <laughs> and that's just looking at a six-person boat. Those nine-person boats were even bigger. That's insane, man, insane. Yeah, shout out to that third-place team of uh, Shannon, Virginia, Jason, and Dodd, they they did a great job in that four-person boat taking third. Well, speaking of four-person boats, fourth place is a one-man. He's out there all by himself. It was that, uh, I don't have the results full up in front of me. Was that Andrew McEwen? That was him. Okay, okay, yep. He, he's an incredible paddler as well, so he is. Yeah, he's very good. And I think that's one of, uh, for the solo and then the tandem unlimited, you can choose between racing a surf ski or a double ski or racing a safari boat, which is more conducive to switching back to canoe paddling. So it's been really interesting um, to see the last few years what the top paddlers are choosing. So I believe this year the first solo was in a surf ski and the first Tandem Unlimited was also a surf ski, um, which oh, means you're on doubles the entire way. Andrew yeah, was, wasn't in a surf ski. He had a cockpit in his boat, but I think okay. he used double blades the whole time. Okay. So was he almost like in a, like a sea kayak type? Yeah, I would say it was more like okay. a sea kayak type boat. Yeah, and then the... I, I think fifth place was a tandem unlimited and they were in a surf ski 
Yeah, I, th- yep. I think Brian and Nate we're in a we're in a ski, right? Yep. Yeah, I believe so. And it's Which just amazing seeing the variety of boats. Yeah. Well, and just packing all the gear that you need to take. You know, there's there's not any interior to a surf ski, so it all has to go either on your person or on top. Yeah, and we actually do have a lot of required gear that we're supposed to be taking with us. That's uh, all listed off in the the rules and stuff, but you have to have everything from life jackets to a snake bite kit and then whatever food you're bringing with you and stuff. Now, life jackets are required on the bay, right? I think I read that somewhere. They are required, and they made it this year that uh, type 4 and 5 are not allowed, so those are the inflatable. So you have to wear a full life jacket the whole time, and you have to start with it. You carry it around, and then you have to put it on once you get to the bay. Okay. Did you guys use a, like, some life jackets over time will actually absorb water. People don't realize that, but they they kind of pick up a little bit of weight. Did you guys use a, like, a standard orange one? The, the ones that people kind of laugh at from time to time don't seem to soak up the water as much. Did you use something, like, race-specific or just a standard orange? We use those standard orange ones, and uh, actually wearing those, they didn't get in the way when we were doing the double blades, which is what we used on the bay. But before we got to the bay, we had those in vacuum bags, so they were uh, watertight <laughs> all the way down oh, the river. protected. That's genius. So I don't know how great that is, like, if you have to open them in an emergency, but they kept our life jackets dry until we had to put them on. Now, what was the, um, for for the people that maybe didn't follow it as closely, do you remember what the, the daytime high was? Just to give the listeners an idea of how hot it actually was down there. I don't know exactly what it got to, but it was forecast to be 108. And I think from all accounts that we had from the feeders, it probably hit that. Ouch. <sighs> yeah, I was just thinking that, ouch, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> Right on. All right. Well, Wait, can, Weston, do you have any other last thoughts on Safari? Are you counting down the days of Safari 2023? I don't know if I'm going to be jumping back on the Safari bandwagon that quickly, but it's definitely something I think I'd like to go and do again. And uh, I think if anybody gets offered the chance to go do it, it's probably something you want to jump at because it was a it was a whole different experience and it was a lot of fun for me. Well, congratulations on your on your win. Um, it was really fun to watch. One of the tighter races. It seems like it's always exciting at the end, but a really tight race between two pretty evenly matched teams. And uh, I think it. A lot of us here were were following you and and uh, Nick's team and a lot of the others. So, uh, congratulations, I guess, to everyone who who finished or well, even thanks. attempted, really. <laughs> yeah, really. I think uh, some of the guys on my team were telling me a typical year, the success percentage is anywhere from 75 to 80 percent. And I think it was like 50 percent this year. So anybody who even attempted it was tough just for being out there. And those that made it, it was a great job making it to the end. And I'll say that second place team with Nick on it was uh they were a tough team, and even though we did have what seemed like a pretty big gap towards the end, we were always thinking about them and waiting for them to make a good run at us. 
and we knew they were a tough team, so we had to keep on pushing it. We could never throttle back and relax. And uh, it was a good thing we did because we definitely struggled on the bay, and it was a it was a hard fought race for sure. Right on, right on. Well, hey, thank you for joining us tonight, Weston. It is uh, much appreciated. Um, I, I got to take a quick shout out. Thanks to all the listeners and. Um, Stay tuned for our next episode. We should start teasing some Asable River Canoe Marathon stuff coming up here shortly. Until then, keep the round side down and the paddles wet. Thank you for listening to the CanoeRaceWorld.com podcast, where we love marathon canoe racing and aren't afraid to say it. Be sure to visit the website at CanoeRaceWorld.com and don't forget to support our sponsors who make this whole thing possible. Until next time, keep paddling. Keep paddling.